Welcome to the Conditional Release Program, a podcast that delves into the netherworld of cults, crims and con artists. We don't like these people and it shows. We believe the best way to expose them is to hold them up to a harsh light, point our index fingers in their general direction and mock them mercilessly, take them down a peg or two until they cease to exist in any other form than the shit on our shoes. I'm Jack the Insider, otherwise known as Peter Hoisted for tax purposes. And I'm Joel Hill, and we're headed into some very interesting territory in this episode and taking advantage of Jack's vast knowledge of crims in Australia. I'm very excited about this one. Well, I'm wearing three pairs of underpants. I could shit my pants at any given time because today we are going to take a look at the causes of crime. Hard, violent crime. I think of the scariest people we've ever heard of, the pantheon of gangsters, mass murderers and glass-eyed stone killers. I can think of a few right now. People who kill you with a smile and hurl you into a chipper with a bottle of turps so your legs don't get caught up in the blades. How are these monsters created, though? Was it nature, nurture? How do you turn into a sociopathic murderer? Is it rock music? Like, shock jock dickheads demanding our government's been tough on crime? I need someone to blame, Jack! Don't worry, Joel. We'll find plenty of people to blame. And in order to find out who, we're going to have to go back, way back, when these monsters were trusting innocent children and have a long, hard look at their lives as they unfolded. We're going to find many of these violent characters have a lot in common. And sadly, we don't have to look back too far to see the horrors inflicted upon wayward children. And we'll look to the present generation in youth detention and see whether our society is still in the monster creation business. And we'll get right on it and have deeper dive. But first... It's time for the Conditional Release Program's weekly news. What is going on with Hunter Biden's laptop and why won't mainstream media get on it? Well, mainstream media won't get on it because it's probably full of shit. So you may have heard something about Hunter Biden's laptop being left at a repair shop with the contents being sent to the FBI and then, of course, to America's favourite mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Ah, straight to Rudy. Straight to Rudy. (laughs) Law enforcement first, straight over to Rudy after that. Do not pass go. It's just like the whole story is bullshit and looking into it has been super difficult. Like Giuliani calls it a laptop from hell and honestly separating the truths from the half truths, the downright fiction is genuinely hard. So the laptop was given to the New York Post and even the reporters there are starting to distance themselves from it because it's completely sketchy. Essentially, they've given this to a couple of uh, outlets, Fox News and the Wall Street Journal, and they are refusing to put their name to it properly either. A whole bunch of right-wing hacks are really pushing it, but legitimately is really lacking. So GTV, which is uh, basically a Chinese billionaire's fake news website, they're pushing it really hard and uh, no one with any shred of credibility is prepared to really touch it in depth. And a lot of talking head commentators, including some of our own, are happy to go out on a limb, but realistically they're speculating. And the entire thing is based on smoke and mirrors. The best theory I've heard is that it's a compilation of blackmail items that they've made into a form of some sort of laptop to give it some sort of tangible credibility. But like any conspiracy, it falls apart because there's too many players and things go wrong. And when the cracks form, people start to have doubts. Like, this story has so many players and so many wild claims, the whole thing just becomes invalid. Because where there's always a kernel of truth in these conspiracies, they tend to obscure that kernel in a mountain of shit. Big mountain, big stinking fetid mountain of shit. This one's got those little steam waves coming off it. So, but that... To be fair, there is one thing I can say with confidence. I believe, to the best of my senses and abilities, that I have seen Hunter Biden's cock. Well, it's certainly supposed to be. And tell me, Joe, what did it look like? I mean, is it good shape? Girth? Is he a big lad? 
Hunter Biden has a pretty decent cock. I'd give it no. about a 9 out of 10. Well, there you go. So, not only that, but it was also wrapped in the feet of an alleged prostitute. And this happened either during or after the act of smoking some crack. So, Jack, look, I remember the days when that was enough. When smoking crack and getting a foot job from a hooker was enough for a decent scandal. But these days, we have to exaggerate fucking everything. A good old sex tape just doesn't cut the mustard. So... The claims of this bloody laptop from hell so far are there's a bunch of emails that place his father in hot water over some sort of pay-for-play corruption chart. You know, China, Russia, fucking wah, wah, wah. Vague, 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 though. 100%. Nothing specific. Yes. Oh, God forbid you might get sued. Pictures of naked underage women because no conspiracy mm. theory in 2020 is complete without a few fucking kids. And the interesting thing here is that the FBI have the laptop. They would arrest Biden if this were true. But, of course, yes. it's not fucking true. No, it's all bullshit. So, Rudy Giuliani claims the photos are disgusting and will shock the hell out of you, which is just, you know, vague enough to keep him out of trouble, as we said. But he also said this was authentic as hell, which is actually really funny because he used a made-up scary place to create a metaphor for authenticity. So, Well, if there's a hell there, Joel, I'm pretty sure Rudy's on his way there sooner or later. And I think when he looks at the mirror, he's having a shave in the morning. I think he understands it. I think he's in the seventh layer already. So Hunter is also pictured showing off his new tattoo of the Finger Lakes in Michigan. Now, honestly, the tattoo fucking sucks. And it's already on public record. It's been in the newspapers and things like that because people seem to give a shit about what he's got on his back. But the hilarious thing is the Anons think this is due to a tunnel network of mole children, of course, under the Finger Lakes. So like, He's got a map. Well, of course. He's got a map of where he's, where he's secreted children it's, on his back. It's the first thing I think of. When I think about my mole children, I just like have to put a tattoo on my back to make sure I remember where they are. Mm, tattooing hard evidence of pedophilia on your back is a pretty sure way to get a jury to convict. I would have thought, Joel. They just rip Hunter's shirt off and bingo, he's guilty. Yeah, the glove doesn't fit, right? So, and of course, like the repair guy that handed the laptop to Giuliani, he thinks that mm. Clinton's going to murder him because of the Clinton body oh. count. Uh, Hillary or Bill? Uh, look, honestly, I'd say Hillary. He's probably got a little secret crush on Bill. They, they, they're weird like that. Yeah, I have noticed. The whole story is a fucking mess, but the real takeaway from this is the Overton window has shifted so far that a video of you getting a foot job from a prostitute while smoking crack is no longer enough to tarnish your name. Standards, standards have slipped, Joel. <laughs> and it's been a huge week in Melbourne uh, with the entire population of 5 million breaking out of 100-day lockdown and getting on the beers. I'm a Melbourne boy, Joe, as you may know, and what I remember most about the place is when Melburnians decide to get on the beers, they do make a very fine fist of things. I'm old enough to remember when a family day at the cricket at the G meant dragging a 75-litre plastic bin full of ice and piss (laughs) into Bay 13, drinking the entire contents by stumps and having a couple of cleansers on the way home. Get stuck in, Melbourne. You've earned it. Well, maybe not all Melburnians, Jack, because there was yet another freedom protest defiling the Shrine of Remembrance again, and the usual mm. cast of sovsits, anons, anti-vaxxers, 5G lunatics and hooligans without the nads to barrack for a decent soccer team, annoying the cops and shitting on Australia's war dead in a desperate attempt to be noticed. I did see a great deal of ugliness, Joel, with thanks to Cam Smith and his Twitter feed. From the footage, I noticed a few of the older coppers there pining for a good old-fashioned baton charge. You could see it in their faces. They were raring their way in and just start swinging. And perhaps they should have, 
because about an hour later, one of the more insane among the protesters belted one of the police horses with a flag. And what sort of pond life hits a horse when it's not in a race? And a masked horse botherer decamped into the throng, and I just hope the wallopers caught up with him and gave him a Victoria Police Force special. Our friends in blue like to call it a hamburger with a lot. Take it from me. You don't want one, Joel. And if you're ever offered one, knock it back. Yes, and meanwhile, Jack, in America, there are Americans. Yes, always. It'll be a tremendous place if they win it there. <laughs> Especially around the White House, Jack, which is oozing coronavirus again. Oh, there what? are great big drops of the virus dripping off the eaves of the White House and splashing onto people's heads <laughs> as they run the gamut of certain death whenever they turn up at the Rose Garden, which, if you're a Trumper, is pretty much every Sunday these days. Kind of like playing Russian roulette with a 9mm Glock jar. Indeed it is. And now in the Vice President's office, more than half are down for the count. Yes. Mm. And what do you think's going on there, Joel? Do you think they're trying to get Big Gay Mike out of the way? Is it a conspiracy to kill off Big Gay Mike and replace him with the original VP pick, the not-so-deceased JFK Jr.? Mm. Our friends in the QAnon universe seem to think so. Well, that can't be good news for JFK Jr.'s nemesis, Bill Gates. But wouldn't Donnie Jr. have his eye on the Veep's gig? Eric might too, but he is the ultimate fail son, the Trump throwback who somehow managed to navigate his way into something bearing some vague resemblance to a human being. Now, poor old Eric is the one who cheers his dad on on Twitter. Always tells us how proud he is of dad. Love you, dad! And, of course, it goes unrequited, unanswered. I don't think the great orange lizard even bothers to press the like button on Eric's tweets. <laughs> Love you, dad! Yeah, 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 yeah. Busy, son. <laughs> of course, Eric is too stupid to feed himself if he ever lost all of dad's money, uh, but he's not thinking about that. He's thinking about how much he loves his dad. And if it came to a choice between all the trappings and trimmings of wealth or the love of his old man, he'd pick love every time. And the only trouble is, every time he reaches out to his dad, whether in person or on the socials, dad gives him the arsehole. No good will come of it, Joel. I give Eric a great big hug, but he might well be a super spreader and kill me and my entire family. <laughs> Leave Eric with his pain, Jack. There's nothing we can do to help him anymore. All right, Joel. Fuck Eric. <laughs> and that was the news that was this week. There isn't any more. I had a good look around, rummaged behind the couch cushions, and even went through your bin, Joel. You should recycle more, by the way. But there wasn't any news. That's all the news we have this week. There ain't no more, and that means it's time to put our serious faces on and get stuck into our deeper dive. So, Jack, you've spent a long time looking at the careers of seriously violent men. Uh, most people put this down to poverty, but the viciousness of these criminals surely can't be explained by just a lack of cash on hand. Well, the cause of crime are complex. Uh, uh, and in general terms, the major cause is, is poverty. And not just economic, but intellectual and emotional poverty. A, a sort of a failure to connect uh, with people beyond a, a narrow group of uh, of peers. I, I want to talk today about the effects that incarceration itself has. And in Australian history, of course, European contact established most of this country, uh, at least as a penal colony. So we've got form, as it were, as a, uh, as a pretty brutal place. But what we've done really from the 19th century onwards, is follow, as we did with so many other of our institutions, 
established the sort of British models and we established British models of of prisons here and added to them a certain Australian flavour. And they were horrible places. They largely did not change from uh, from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century and beyond. Uh, yeah. They were horrible places and people who went through them were lucky to come out uh, and, well, the chances of them being rehabilitated were very, very scarce. And... <clears throat> Uh, these places were, in fact, as you said before, um, basically monster creation uh, places, you know, environments. Yeah. They, they were breeding grounds of criminals. Uh, it, it's what criminologists refer, refer to as the criminogenic effects of incarceration, that the four walls that men and women are locked up in drive recidivism and, and generally speaking, the worse the place, the more likely you are to reoffend, it, it it's sort of almost uh, counterintuitive. But the worse the place is, uh, the worse the, the the detention centre or prison is, uh, the more likely is uh, is that people will uh, uh, re-enter them at some point in their lives. And see, prisons are often described as sort of crime colleges. In the old days, in Pentridge, used to be known as the as the Bluestone College. People who'd go in, men who'd go in with apprenticeships uh, would leave with master's degrees in crime. And I want to look at, at how this worked in reality and go back half a century or more to Australia's youth detention places as a sort of case study on how go- governments get things so horribly wrong and create horrific environments that essentially create monsters who are then released into society only to exact revenge on the community, on yeah. on people like yourself and myself. Now, yeah. Our youth prisons were disgraceful places where violence and sexual assault were routine and it was based largely on the UK Borstal system. What's the, what is the Borstal system? Well, it was a, a crazy means of establishing order in, in youth detention facilities. Um, uh, the discipline was at a certain level, was, was doled out by the more senior inmates. So if they were 16, 17, advanced physically, let's say, then they were the ones who handed out the beatings. I mean, this was all overseen by the guards and the guards would come in and uh, and, and and certainly do a fair bit of the physical work themselves. Oh. Sexual assaults were routine <clears throat> and... Uh, these rather grim places kids would go into, particularly at, at, at their early at their early adolescent years, 12, 13, 14, be monstered by uh, older kids, be monstered by guards, and then come out. And, and what we see is that virtually every major criminal in Australian history has gone, or so many of them, have gone through uh, boys' homes at one point or another. Uh, uh, <clears throat> John Frederick Chow Hayes uh, went through Gosford Boys' Home, and that was in the first, or the second, I should say, the second decade of the 20th century. And then we have places, then we have names, as I say, household names like Len, Leonard Arthur McPherson, who was uh, considered the Mr. Big of of Sydney crime for 20 years. Uh, the man who stood alongside him 
Stan Smith was another one who went through the boys' home system. And uh, George Freeman, uh, mm. that triumvirate of Australian crime, McPherson, Smith and Freeman, known as the team, they, uh, he, George also went through uh, Gosford boys' home. The list is long. Nettie Smith was another one. Mittagong, Gosford, Christopher Dale Flannery down in Victoria. Uh, he was at the Morning Star boys' home run by the Franciscans. And he was sexually assaulted there, and uh, and and brutalised there as well, as I understand it. Having spoken to people who who knew of his experiences there, I mean, virtually every major crook in Australia in the in the nineteen eighties and before had been through boys' homes. And I want to concentrate on maybe just a few right now. And and what we want to do in later programs is is do particular profiles of these guys. They're very interesting. Mm. They do share a great deal in common, but yeah. <clears throat> they were outrageous criminals uh, yeah. who uh, just uh, were as violent as all get out, had no uh, restraint, and uh, but were cunning and shrewd enough to start building themselves empires. Yeah. And, and that's what we—that's essentially what these boys' homes created. Not everyone who went through a boys' home would go on to become a serious crook. Some would be petty criminals. Others might have, you know, dragged themselves into rehabilitation themselves. Others, of course, might have been so brutalised by their experiences that they were, you know, almost, uh, you know, um, well, they they, they couldn't connect with society for the rest of their lives and and they uh, depended on welfare and so forth to get them through almost cradle to grave. Um, But... I want to just concentrate on uh, Lenny McPherson, Stan Smith and George Freeman, who were yeah. essentially the, the, the three ultimate figures in Sydney crime in the 1980s. They were yeah. all murderers, um, Freeman at least two, Stan Smith uh, 15. Uh, Stan was probably the most successful hitman this country's ever seen, <laughs> certainly successful in that no, no one ever pulled him up. He was never even charged. <laughs> he spent Stan Smith f- fifteen murders, twenty five shooting incidents, died with an estate of twenty five million dollars. Major, sus. major marijuana marijuana uh, distributor and trafficker. Yeah, uh, that's right. Extortionist. Um, yeah. He spent three months in a, in Pentridge. Actually, he spent th- just three months as an as from the age of twenty one. He he spent just three months in prison. Um, but of course, he had been through the boys' homes and had a yeah. conviction which dragged him into an adult prison when he was twenty. Yeah, Len McPherson. Three months is still a good stint. Len McPherson was this big, bullocking character who had a face like a bull elephant's scrotum, you know, I mean, <laughs> and he just bark out orders. You know, you, you you wouldn't see Len necessarily, but you'd hear him because he was just this really loud, um, his conversation lashed with obscenities, didn't matter where he was. I spoke to a, a police officer who used to use him as an informer and they'd meet in a cafe and, and this Copper was particularly alarmed about that because once Len walked into the cafe, everyone else had to leave. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was just that loud and that unpleasant. And yes. But Len, 
Well, well, Len, Len was, again, he used to openly talk about being abused at Gosford, Gosford Boys Home sexually and phys- physically. Yeah. Uh, and all three of these men and others, they would follow a fairly fairly set pattern. They would they would spend perhaps one or two stints in boys' homes, and then they would uh, graduate to as adults to to um, to uh, to prison, short uh, jail prisons, often for violent offending. And by the time they get out in their early twenties, they are simply raring to go, just bristling with anger, uh, uh, so violent, and ready to extract a, a revenge. On anyone, I mean, yeah. they, they consider themselves victims, and they uh, had they had been victims, uh, but they were never going to be victims again. And so these yeah. three men became leading figures in crime. Uh, they knew how to play police. They knew how to uh, uh, to extort money from from villains, from other villains, and, and, and anyone else who got in the way because yeah. of their reputations. And yeah. <clears throat> what we see in their in their personalities, all three of them, is that they had this extraordinary violence in their twenties and thirties. So yeah. Len McPherson, when he was first married, uh, of course he wasn't much of a husband, uh, and he'd be staying out night brothels and all sorts of places, and he, and his wife. Uh, well, she sort of put up with as much as she could, but uh, if there was ever going to be any conflict, Lenny had. You know, basically beat the beat the living crap out of her, and and when finally their their uh, marriage came to an end, McPherson tied her leg to a tree, one leg to a tree, and the other one of her legs to to the back of his car, and proceeded to try and pull her apart. He he delivered yeah. such an appalling bashing that the uh, uh, that the uh, corrupt police detective Ray Kelly. Uh, had to intervene and and ensure her safe passage out of the state. Jeez. I mean, he wasn't charged. He should have been charged of very serious offences, but none of that yeah. happened. It was just about getting the woman away. Uh, and Stan Smith, I mean, as a young man, uh, look, I saw a woman give uh, character evidence about Stan Smith and she said, oh, you know, Stan was lovely. He used to treat us women. And and in his middle ages when he calmed down, sure, he he may well have. But as a younger man, and Lenny Lenny picked him out of the crowd. He was was a good 15 years younger than than Lenny Stan Smith. But he picked him out of the crowd because of his propensity for violence. And Stan Smith and Lenny would visit brothels under their control or or where they were extorting... uh, uh, extorting other uh, other pimps, and and uh, and and Stan would be beating the hell out of the women there, hanging women by their ankles from the third or fourth story, uh, torturing people. With Lenny running around throwing cash about to pay their medical expenses. Yeah, and George Freeman, the sort of the, the last figure in this triumvirate, and the, and the sort of last piece in the puzzle for the team, because of his gambling expertise. Well, Freeman had also been through the boys' homes, and he was a little guy. I mean, he 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 went to to uh, uh, he went to Gosford uh, when he was thirteen as a small kid, you know. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> yeah. And so he was always going to be prey when he was like that. And when he got out, 
uh, he was he, he just erupted into violence, particularly when anyone had a go at his height uh, or his size. So he was known. Um, his nickname was Mouse, but way betide anyone who actually called that to his face, called him that to his face, because he would just grab anything that was handy and just start lashing out with it. And this yeah. is what these guys like. And then you see them develop. Uh, you see them develop into more strategic thinkers. Again, yeah. absolutely no sense of regret or remorse about what they do. Very little sympathy for anyone who, who crosses them. And and an understanding that, well, we've got to be worse than everybody else. We, yeah, that's uh, it. So our rivals, well, we'll kill them, and we'll talk about this later, how they were able to do that with impunity, and that involved yeah. obviously corrupt police. But they committed the murders, and, and they committed murders with impunity, and one by one their rivals either disappeared or fell into line. And they ran Sydney crime for 20 or 30 years. Or, 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 yeah. It was almost 30 years. Yeah, so, Jack, these are standout examples, but not everyone who went through Australia's borstals went on to be, like, you know, mass-murdering gangsters. Well, that's true. And, and, and some would never offend again. You know, some would have the courage to sort of pull themselves out of that cycle and, and go on to live decent lives. And... Uh, and some similarly would go into a sort of vegetative state, you know, after after the abuse that they'd suffered, but which after the abuse they'd suffered. But whichever way you look at it, it, it was a failure, you know. So let's talk a, about the social cost of crime and how the criminogenic effects of incarceration drive the social cost of crime up. And take the example of a young male who goes into prison for car theft. Now it's going to be more than one car, by the way. So that person's knocked off a series of cars might be involved in vehicle rebranding and what have you, uh, rebirthing, I should say, uh, and, and, and possibly connected to more serious criminals. But that person ends up in jail after having knocked off, let's say, four or five cars. And the social cost of that crime is the loss of those vehicles, two victims. That's the, the, they have lost their, their cars and we can, we can sort of put, uh, put uh, you know, a dollar figure around their loss and then there's a sense of violation and and a loss of trust with society in general. That, yeah, that it's a lot not of, pleasant. It's not, it's not pleasant at all. Uh, and, that's, and so when we put all those things together, we see what the social costs of, of that young male's criminal activity has come to. And when that young male goes into prison, spends time there, let's say it's two years, and the rule of thumb, by the way, is if you spend more than two years in an Australian prison, there is a chance, there is a two-thirds chance that you will return to prison at some later stage. Yeah. And, and what's more likely is when that young male leaves prison, he goes on to commit more serious offences. And let's say it's aggravated burglaries this time, much more violent offending. The social yeah. costs of victimhood are starting to go through the roof. You've yeah. got people genuinely traumatised. Uh, you've got people genuinely terrified and yeah. and you've got people suffering serious injury along the way with this sort of stuff. An aggravated burglary is yeah. uh, a home invasion in the sort of media speak. It's uh, not pleasant. Uh, it, it's certainly not. And, 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 and when that young male has committed those offences, having learned, acquired the sort of knowledge to do so, not just that, but lost that sense of connection with the community that makes him think I can go and do this sort of stuff. 
the, the social cost has gone through the roof. And when that person gets pulled up, if that person gets pulled up, that young male gets pulled up again and goes back into jail this time for a longer period, by the time he gets out the third time, there is a very strong likelihood that he will go on to commit very serious offences like murder, all sorts of mayhem. And the yeah. social costs balloon again. You know, we could sit around and put a dollar figure on it, but what we started at first was a relatively small social cost and then through incarceration, the social cost just goes through the roof. And that's what we're trying to stop. I mean, this is not, you know, a small L liberal approach. This is really just good common sense. And you could say, look, you know, these borstal systems, these uh, children's homes, these monster factories were objective failures. I mean, the the policy behind them are a complete nightmare. Nothing about this makes any kind of social sense. And uh, the issue is here that, of course, it's much more populist to go hard on crime, to stamp down. And when it comes to youth offenders, I mean, we're, we're seeing this in Queensland right now where there's basically, you know, Frecklington doing the dog whistle on Townsville and a lot of people in Townsville who are, you know, experiencing a crime wave of kids running around going amok. Mm. I mean, you know, it's tricky because do you go soft on crime? Because uh, when you go hard on crime, you get better criminals. And when you go soft on crime, well, there's no consequences. Like, what's the go? Well, you don't want to be soft on crime. You can't be soft on crime. But but when we look at the McPhersons and the Stan Smith, we can see that in their lifetimes, there was there were opportunities that were lost, an opportunity for an intervention when these men were in their early adulthood and, and providing them with education, a sense of purpose and a prospect yeah. of gainful employment. The, the, yeah. the thing yeah. about this is... You know, if you're going to spend money on those sorts of rehabilit- rehabilitative programs, you've got yeah. to understand that you're not going to have – it's not going to be 100% success rate. No. <laughs> but everyone that you turn over has actually got a social benefit. You 100%. Know? So I want to come over also Scott Morrison on our listeners, but the best form of rehabilitation is a job. <laughs> and through it, a sense of meaning, purpose, and connection with the community, because that's what these kids have often lost. If and you have a go, you get a go, right? <laughs> well, yeah. If you have a have, you have a go, you commit a murder. I mean, <laughs> uh, there are programs at work, and based largely around the crucial months when an individual is set to leave prison, and it, it involves training, preparation, how to basic things like how to apply for a job. Um, and providing yeah. someone with some skills. These things cost money. They, right? yeah. they, they cost money. So governments, yeah. you know, looking at slashing budgets will, will cut these things first. It's uh, investment. Well, it is. It, that's the way you've got to look at it uh, as, a, as a form of investment. Just as an example, the Brax government in Victoria started spending some money, not a lot of money, by the way, uh, on rehab programs for, for, for female and male inmates uh, and for the first time in Victorian history, what we saw in just the space of a few years was recidivism rates in Victoria started shrinking. And it was quite dramatic. You know, you could actually see how the value in spending that money. And they were good programs. They provided people with jobs, you know, uh, connected yeah. them with the community, even if it was yeah. volunteer work, gave them a sense of purpose. Purpose, yeah. And, and 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 you start getting out of that, you know, that high threat period 12 months later after after they leave prison and 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 they and they had developed skills and employment and so forth. So we see recidivism rates 
dropping in that environment and compared to the rest of Australia, um, the Brax government had done some rather wonderful things. And of course, yep. Brax retired and, and his uh, successor was beaten at the next election and along came a new government and the first thing they did was cut those spending programs, those those rehab programs, and then we saw the re- <laughs> we saw the reverse happen. <laughs> Basically, recidivism rates in Victoria started going back up to uh, to their to their previous highs from from yep. from ten years before, <clears throat> and so a lot of wasted stuff. Now, you know, we don't talk about these things because we're soft, small L liberals or we're social mm. justice warriors. Right. Yeah. So, so what we're talking about here is reducing, or well, trying to trying to trying to cut the cycle of crime, and reduce the social cost. I mean, yeah. so uh, let's just get let's just get with the idea. Let's just stick with you know that that whole concept of tough on crime, which becomes a sort of almost chest beating exercise uh, for for per- politicians, and of course the media. The media runs hard on on uh, tough on crime uh, with a with a tough on crime angle. I mean, if the yeah. if the media had their way, we would all be uh, locked away, dead locked away in our homes, uh, terrified. You know, yeah. absolutely shitting ourselves of what might be going on outside and consuming a lot of media while we were yes. there. Right, listening so, to drive time <laughs> without driving. That, that's right. So, so, so this whole business of the tough on crime stuff—it's it, actually it's counterproductive. The idea that if we have longer sentences and, and brutal environments as a form of deterrence simply doesn't work. When an individual commits an offence, he or she is not thinking. You know. Oh crikey! There's a there's a mandatory two year sentence here. You know yeah. the, the magistrate won't have any discretion. I'll get two years. That that doesn't work that way. A, 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 a person who's about to commit an offence doesn't think, oh yeah, there used to be a two year jail sentence for this, but now it's five, and that will probably yeah. put me into a harsher prison environment. Gee, really? Maybe I shouldn't do this. I mean, that's just not the way people uh, who offend think. So the idea of ratcheting up prison sentences is done strictly for punitive sense, uh, just for, for, for a punitive purpose, and sort of locks people away in environments that are pretty horrible. But they can't, they're going to come out. And when they do come out, uh, when they do come out, you know, they're going to e- extract a bit of revenge. And it's not going to be on the politician or the media proprietor. It's going to be on people like you and me, Joe. Yeah, and look, this is the thing. So we shouldn't be tough on crime, but we should be at the same time. There's a real paradox here, but one of the things that's really difficult is that the shock jocks have the phone to the Premier. They are demanding we get tougher on crime and criminals, and they're talking to people who vote. Yeah, and and, and look... They, I may believe what they're thinking, but every piece of data, uh, statistical yeah. evidence, tells you otherwise. And Don't let data get in the way of a good yarn, Jack. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, look, let's remember the media flourished from crime reporting, right? Yeah. And, and, and the true crime stuff, well, that's an industry. You know, there are shows on TV, special yeah. reports on media websites. It's We're in, doing it right now. It's an industry. <laughs> I guess we are, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> you know, and I've look, I've told plenty of – Crime stories in my time. I mean, and yeah. people are fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, uh, look, let's move away from that SJW 
branding that might come our way if uh, certain folk on the right were having a listen to this. And I've got no problem with, with, with serious violent offenders, murderers, serial rapists yep. being banged away for the rest of their lives or yep. at least until they're too old to pose any sort of risk. Pedophiles um, especially. But we need to understand that the longer we put people away in brutal environments, the criminogenic, that word again, the criminogenic effects of incarceration are likely to lead to more serious, often more violent offending, and the law-abiding folk are the ones paying the price for that. So you've got people, we put them away for as long as bloody possible when they've become monsters. But let's go back to the monster factories. Um, where are we at? today because you know about this where are we at today with youth detention in australia because after dondale uh honestly i think there's a lot going on today that we thought had stopped uh, at, at any given time there are a thousand kids in detention in australia and that's a dramatic decline almost divided by 20 since chris flannery was locked up in morningstar in the 1950s so we're getting some things right uh, but there are alarming figures and, and, and really uh, very poor statistics around that uh, relatively small figure. 90% are male. 63% are awaiting trial. And that's an astonishing figure in itself. So of that 100 kids, 630 are banged up uh, in youth detention facilities without having been convicted of an offence. Well, they might have been convicted of offences earlier on, but what they've been charged with has not been brought before the courts. And this is really going to be, and this has been, this is this is an issue that's been growing in the last ten years. We're finding that courts get backed up. Uh, kids uh, uh, may, may may receive bail, and then if they breach that bail, they go. Certainly, in New South Wales, it's it's mandatory. They go straight. They go straight into incarceration, and those bail breaches might be relatively minor. It might be a failure to report to police. It might be a failure to uh, uh, to uh, to work within a curfew. Driving um, unlicensed. Well, it's not even another offence. It's just the it's it's the offence. Oh, well, the breach of the bail conditions that can yeah. take them straight into prison again. In New South Wales, these are mandatory. Uh, and elsewhere, they're frowned upon by magistrates. So we have, you know, almost two-thirds of the of, of a 1,000 kids in detention who are awaiting trial. And with COVID, we found that matters are being pushed back. We find, we're finding also, sensibly, that bail is being granted more often. Yeah. But we're finding now that, you know, the average time five years ago for a kid facing um, facing a, a criminal matter uh, in the juvenile in the juvenile courts would have to wait up to a year. So a year in detention would have to wait a year in detention for that matter to be heard. And now with COVID, it's likely that's going to spin further out of control. So or, or further delays. So if someone is on remand in the juvenile justice system, they could wait up to two years for their matter to be heard. And I just want to explain what that two years would be like for a 15, 16 or 17-year-old boy mainly, or girls too sometimes, and that is they would be spending 23 hours a day in a cell. Uh, they would go out for an hour's exercise and there'd also be times when they 
when they eat and when they uh, when they shower, etc. Uh, but essentially, twenty three hours uh, in a very small cell and not given much else of anything else. Um, so these are really, you know, when we talk about monster creation, mm. that's really sort of tilting at tilting at that again. Yeah, and and of course the. The, the really appalling things about inc- uh, uh, about youth detention rates are the extraordinarily high high levels of indigenous incarceration. Yeah, uh, indigenous youth in the Northern Territory are forty times more likely to be incarcerated. In Western Australia, it's twenty times. In every other state or territory, it's around ten times. Yep. Yeah, and that's just you know it's a shocking statistic because. That sort of factor of things is just that's just crazy. And and look, and, and a lot of it's avoidable. I mean, the ter- the territory has higher rates of incarceration than Louisiana, and and that's at the top of the tree in the US with a with a pretty lousy, you know, notorious sort of penal system. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so most of these offences, at least, begin with minor league property and and motor vehicle. Uh, crimes. Uh, there are ways, there are programs we can get around this. They, they require a, a bit of money, a little bit of money, not a lot of money, yeah. you know. So, for example, um, in remote and, – and, and they do this actually in New South Wales, but not a, not as much as that they perhaps should. Uh, but they'll take a couple of uh, guys who are, um, you know, skilled skilled drivers and, and uh, with – with aptitude with kids, and and they'll take them out to uh, rural and uh, or, or remote uh, New South Wales, and and they'll put those kids through, um, you know, sort of driving ed, driver ed, and driver testing. Yeah. Now it's not the same as uh, young kids, young middle class kids in, in Sydney or Melbourne who have to go through what is it, one hundred and fifty hours yeah, of driving in various conditions, one hundred and twenty. Uh, under various conditions. It's a lot. And, yeah, it look, and, and, and some people might say, well, that's unfair, you know, these Indigenous kids are being well looked after. The, the simple fact of the matter is you want to try and get these people out of the system. Yep. And if they've got a driver's licence, that's going to keep them out of the system. They're not going to get pulled over for driving unlicensed yep. for a start, yep. you know. Uh, and... And the other thing that we've got, and it's still a, it's still a major issue, particularly in Western Australia, is we got we have uh, uh, people being locked up for uh, for failure to pay fines. You yeah. know, and, and now the, there's a Labor government in place in in Western Australia, and they claim, oh well, we just can't get through the upper house. But uh, these things are no brainers. Yeah. You don't want people locked up because they haven't paid a hundred fifty dollar fine or a four hundred dollar fine. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Oh, absolutely. And, and, so, so there are things that can ha- that can happen that can drop those indigenous rates. Mainly, the fines are for adults, but but for youth, it's it's getting around this very early offending, the property offending, and so forth. And there are better ways of of doing that. And there, some of the other ways uh, that we talk about is basically sitting uh, youth uh, offenders down with their victims, yeah. and and. And sort of having a bit of it's not really a shaming exercise, no. but it's a 
it's designed to in, in, in increase a bit of empathy uh, and and a bit of understanding for what they've done, uh, and and it can be quite effective. Again, these things are practised uh, in New South Wales, in Queensland, and Victoria, and maybe elsewhere. But I'm, but I'm unaware of it. But it's just not done enough. Yeah. You see, so so these things that uh, they, they don't attract money, they don't attract funding, they don't attract headlines. No. Um, because uh, because. Uh, well, there there are no votes in prison reform. No. There are just none. But look, there is one thing where Australia is as bad as it gets. You know, if we want to compare ourselves to the United States, we are a mile behind, and that is in the area of putting kids in solitary confinement. Yeah. Now, now, firstly, um, uh, the American federal uh, uh, prison system does not. Uh, won't allow, prohibits uh, kids being held in solitary confinement. And they did that uh, in the Obama era Mm -hmm. because the evidence was in. There was all this neuropsychological data that said if you put kids in solitary confinement, this is what happens. And you can actually see it. You don't even have to be a neurologist. If you hold up a brain scan of a a normal normal 17-year-old up against one who's been in solitary confinement for three months, you'll see the structural changes. Yeah. I mean, these are brains in development that are denied stimulus yeah. and it's absolutely dis- totally destructive to the individual. Mm. So in the, in, in, in the Obama era, the Justice Department went around to a lot of the states and said, you've got to stop these practices. You've got to stop these practices not just because they're horrible but because you are wide open for multiple very expensive lawsuits. Yeah. I mean, just destroying a young person's life in the American legal system—that's that's you know that's millions of dollars in compensation right there. And what the Justice Department was telling these state jurisdictions was, with the evidence is in, you 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 cannot dispute this in court. I mean, this you, the best hope you've got is to sit down and settle with them. So one by one, the states, even some of the most um, notorious states in terms of incarceration like Texas have stopped solitary confinement in youth. But in Australia, mm. we keep doing it. Mm. And, and, and one hopes that the mother of all lawsuits will come, yeah. will, come, uh, will come their way. But that's really not why we should be stopping it. We should be stopping it because it's harmful. I mean, for all the dance stands out there, prior to COVID, at any given time, there were 20 kids in adult prisons in Victoria who by necessity had to be held in solitary confinement. And that period of solitary confinement could be up to three months. And by necessity, you know, it's because they're in an adult prison. Well, that, by necessity, because yeah, if, they're, if, if they're placed in, well, they're just not placed in the general prison populations for their for their own safety. But in, in doing so, they create, you know, in, in placing them in solitary confinement, they create perhaps even oh, bigger it's problems. Torture. I mean, it's not as if the. I mean, some of these kids are going to come out and they're going to be furious and angry, Absolutely. and they're going to extract a revenge. But more likely, you know, the, the the neurological effects of solitary confinement are going to lead to people, to young people, being left in almost sort of vegetative states. Yeah. They can't really connect with the 
the rest of the community. They, um, you know, they, they, they basically uh, aren't going to enjoy any sort of intellectual pursuits and they become really just, for want of a better term, burdens on the state. But what, you either uh, get a ward of the state or you get a bloody vicious criminal. I mean, you know, where's the win? Well, well yeah, there's, there's there's simply no win here, and 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 um, uh, that's that's why it's it, it simply got to stop. It, it as I said, it happens in Victoria disgracefully. You know, the so-called Massachusetts of the South, so-called progressive government has allowed this to go on uh, uh, in Western Australia, in Queensland. Um, it has to stop, and it should stop. Well, it should have stopped ten years ago, minimum. But it really has to stop straight away. Yeah. Um, and really, what we're doing is consigning our youth to lives that can never be fulfilled. Yeah, it's a it's a recipe for disaster, and it's one of those things that just keeps on getting cooked. And it's a real shame because for all the money that's saved by putting kids into adult prisons in solitary confinement is spent tenfold in restorative issues down the track. It's madness. Mm. Yeah, it is indeed. I mean, and and it's been really great to talk about it. It's a sort of certain passion of mine. Yeah. The, the trouble is this stuff rarely gets touched on because there are, as we said before, no votes in prison reform. No. But this is not about being soft or tough on crime. It's about being smart about it yeah. and showing a little bit of compassion uh, along the way. I mean, as a society, we need to show that we are better than our worst members. Yeah, and the thing is is that compassion and a general sense of empathy toward people who are in compromised positions does not sell. It just does not sell. And if you were to throw someone on the, the morning shift on 2GB in Sydney selling the line that we need to show more compassion to our disadvantaged members of society, they would not last long on the golden microphone. I'll tell you that right now. Oh look, absolutely, I agree. This is hard sell. I mean, a this is a hard sell. sell. But and and you, 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 but you've got the way you've got to sell it is, you know, if you want to reduce crime, if you want to reduce the the serious offences, then you have to spend a bit of money to rehabilitate people and give them a sense of purpose, yeah, and get the, and get them out of that cycle uh, and into society. In, well, it can be a society, Bearing in mind, it's not always going to work. And 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 if you do spend a bit of money, bit of money on a program, and someone goes through it, it goes out and you know commits some terrible offence. You know the media will be all over that. Oh, too. the but, failures, blah blah blah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, soft on crime. You know, here we are. Yeah. Well, you know, they're like, yeah, it's like staying in the Hilton. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I guarantee you, it's not. I guarantee you, it is being locked up is not being being locked up in a hotel. It's being locked, it's like being locked up in your bathroom. Yeah. And if you think it's all right, go and spend twelve hours in your bathroom tonight and see how you get on. Yeah. And then do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again, and do it again for a year yeah. or eighteen months, and then maybe maybe you'll just be before the courts then and, and having your matter heard. Have your have your partner bring your microphone microwave meal every eight hours and um, see how long you last. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Look, there's there's a lot to reflect on there. That's uh it's it's a heavy episode this one. That's a lot of thought provoking stuff. And uh to be honest, I think I made uh, maybe a bit of a lie down and maybe some counselling to uh to contemplate all that. <laughs> but there isn't time for that now. 
because we're going to change the mood a little bit and move on to the segment that I know our listeners sit around like deranged junkies waiting for the fix. Oh, yes, Joel, a great big fix. A shot in the arm of this program's favourite human being. It's the week in Pete uh, Evans. It's always a uh, big week in uh, Pete Evans, and this is no exception. Um, property prospector Pete has snapped up a giant property to hold some kooky wellness retreats. And while wellness Ooh. retreats are nothing new, I think most of them don't involve lectures at dinner time about mole children. Oh. Unless he's serving up a glass of adrenochrome rich kid's blood with my salmon, I don't really want to know about it. Do what are the elites doing getting up to? Mate, I'm not I'm not there. Very sad. There will be cooking classes, which will probably actually be quite good. But- you can cook the boy. I, yes, look, uh, look. I, I'm just disappointed I wasn't invited. I would have loved to rock up to Pete's place and get on the piss with him, paleo style. How much do you reckon a weekend at Pete Evans' place would well, cost, What Charles? price do you put on your dignity, Jack? <laughs> Come on, Joe, we're not just activating a handful of almonds and spending the rest of the weekend under the bio lamp curing your cancer. And you're bound to walk out with some extra special only at Pete's essential oils, which you can flog to your friends at a profit just like Peter does. And that's a big weekend, Joe. Huge. I'd happily smoke my credit card paying for a weekend. Mate, it'll pay for itself with the first two weeks of hassling your relatives to sell doTERRA to them. But look, as much as I do want to rip shit on this, it does look pretty nice. It's got rolling Mm. green hills, but... Having some wingnut try to convince me that Donald Trump is a light worker and the royal family are <laughs> reptilians just doesn't work for me. I've heard it all before. I've done my own research. It's fucking stupid. I can get that down the East Sydney Hotel at a fraction of the price. So you know what? I'm out. Fuck that. Now, well, there you go. So Pete uh, was uh, dragged to the podium to, uh, this week too and handed a huge award that uh, really uh, nailed uh, some of his finest work. Yes. In the, on the Indeed, socials. postulating Pete winning the Bent Spoon Award is absolutely no surprise to anyone paying attention. It's actually it's an award given by the Australian Skeptics, and this is his second gong. And for the first time in the award's oh. history, it's been won twice by the same back by the same back. person. Well, he won it first in 2015, but I tell you what, I think he's got it a pretty much minced in for the next yeah, four years. Yeah. He, he, I reckon he's got a Apparently yeah. the reason was because, of course, his ridiculous biocharger lamp, which, to be fair, looks pretty cool, but he's full of shit, and his unwavering promotion of anti-vaccination material. He hates the needles, uh, Joe, but don't tell me the biocharger lamp doesn't work. I've spent the best part of the last six months under it. I hate it. to say you've wasted your time, Jack, but uh, what's funny is that when Pete posted this on his social media, his supporters congratulated him. The excellent guys at Block by Pete Evans on Facebook noticed the comment section for his tongue-in-cheek posts were overwhelmingly positive, like he'd won the fucking Nobel Prize for salmon poaching. Yep, the people who are famous for doing their own research failed once again to do their own research. Don't tell me the people who follow Pete Evans are idiots, Joel. I mean, I I find that very hard to believe. Do Do you honestly think that Pete... As would deliberately waste his time just so a bunch of idiots would gormously follow him. You don't think he's got designs on them? You think maybe some of that MSM might, might get around it to a might, few idiots? You think that might be the might plan? might help them out. I tell you what, it's a shocking revelation to me, Jack, and I'm going to spend the entire weekend thinking about it. <laughs> 
What a wonderful, what a wonderful man that Pete Evans is. And you have been listening to the Conditional Release Program with your host, Jack the Insider and Joel Hill. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. And if you've enjoyed our bullshit, throw us a five-star review on your podcast. Jack can be found on Twitter on at Jack the Insider and Joel at Crunchy Moses with a K. We've set up a Facebook page, which if you search for the Conditional Release Program, you can pretty much find. And finally, all feedback, tips, and death threats should be sent to the conditional release program at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, even if it's simply to tell us that you have plans to murder us and put us in a chipper with a couple of litres of terps just to make sure our legs get all the way through. <laughs> Thanks, listeners. I'll catch you next week. Bye now.